Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is part one of a four-part series entitled A Kabbalistic Journey Through Time. The series was filmed at Dominion Shul in April and May of 2021. To see the video recording, please refer either to David's YouTube channel or go to the episode webpage, which you will find at davidsolomon.com. Online. And finally, I'd like to remind listeners of the podcast that from this lecture going forward, new episodes of the podcast will be released fortnightly rather than weekly. As some of you know, or some of you might know, I'm often reticent to discuss the topic of Kabbalah. So when Rabbi Khan rang me uh, a little while ago and said, Would I give a talk sometime between Pesach and Shavuot? on the subject of Kabbalah and I immediately my, I was inclined to say no because um, it's just not a subject, I, although I spent most of my time in it, it's not a subject that has been successfully, in my opinion, transmitted. One of the reasons behind that, and I'm already into the talk now, this is not simply by way of introduction, the content has already started, but one of the reasons behind that is because when you speak to a group of people such as this, and I'm looking around at the face of some of whom I recognize, some of whom I, I don't, and some of whom I almost recognize, or from past lives, is that when you look at a group like this, there is such an incredible disparity in prior knowledge. So that I don't know if I'm pe- speaking to people who are complete novices and just want to know about this, or if I'm pe- speaking to people who are very informed and that's why they decided to come here because they wanted to. Uh, enrich their already already informed perspectives. I don't know any of that, and the chances are, and the likelihood is, that we've got a bit of everyone in this room. Yeah? So I'm going to talk about very advanced concepts. And the challenge that I'm going to do in this four-part series is to give over some very advanced concepts starting from basically zero, okay? So the challenge is to try and absorb that so that the outcome would be the same as if you studied this for 10 years on these particular points. But you'll understand the points because we're going to unfold them from the beginning. Can we follow what I'm doing? If you find that the talk is too severe, too intellectual, too high, then let me or Rabbi Khan know and we'll bring it down if you find the talk way too basic and I'm basically wasting your time. We can up the level, we can. Uh, But it's always good to go over, it's always good to revise the basics, is it not? So, the question then, and I'm still in content here, this is not just introduction, I'm actually, this is really a part of what I really need to communicate about how this four-part series is gonna go, whether you come back for the other three or not is that with that ambiguity of would you please take a course on something to do with Kabbalah, I'm kind of left, you know, like a person who's, well, I was going to bring a metaphor of a person in front of a smorgasbord and a kiddish, but in fact, I, uh, <coughs> I, the reality is, is that we have to anchor it somehow. You can't just go and start talking about Kabbalah. People who do will inevitably find themselves inside a vacuum or that no one knows what they're talking about. You need an anchor for that. And it just so happens that I've been giving a lot of thought to the type of anchor I would like to communicate in my teaching in, in, in the field of Kabbalah, where I consider myself, um, after quite a few decades of immersion, that I still consider myself a student. The great, the great teachers of Kabbalah in the world, they take it to another level, but they have given me permission to teach. So I'm like someone who sits in the academy every day, and I see what's going on, and then they allow me to go out and speak about it on occasion. The reality is, we need an anchor for how I'm going to talk about it. And the anchor is this.
what they sometimes don't tell you at school is that Jewish history itself, for example, Rabbi spoke about the subject of Jewish history, and I thought about that too a bit. And this is a talk that, of course, is called a, a Kabbalistic journey through time. Is that Jewish history itself is of a cosmic nature and is involved in the business of revelation. Now, unless that project of revelation, and it's the revelation of godliness in the world and the revelation of unity in the world, ultimately the purpose of raising human consciousness so that we can actually begin history. But if you're going to have a project of continuous revelation, then it needs to be continuous revelation. It's not that we once had a revelation Everybody talks about the revelation of Sinai, which we're going to be celebrating in Shavuot in a few weeks. Nobody talks about that. But it's not that, that we're always thinking back, the Mafreya, as they say in Hebrew, to that revelation, and that's when it was and it doesn't happen again. There's a famous, you know, famous Midrashic line that everything that was destined to be revealed was revealed to Moses at Sinai, and that's fine. But we don't have access to those revelations. They become further revealed, underlining the word revealed, throughout history. History is an ongoing project of revelation. It's important to remember that point, I'm going to come back to it. The second point I want us to note, and what this course is founded on, and this is kind of, this is kind of where we're pushing towards territory that is not always, in fact, hardly ever stated, and that is that it is the nature of the revelation of the Jewish people in the world about God and about the purpose of the world and about the human being. It is in the nature of that project of revelation that it moves constantly towards synthesis. It takes what exists and without getting too Hegelian about it, the next level of revelation is almost always a synthesis of previous revelations that appear at first to not be connected, which are suddenly burst through through by divine light of revelation that pierces the consciousness first of the Jewish people and then the world about a new paradigm that synthesizes both those or both or more of those. Does everybody follow? That's the meaning of synthesis. And when we look at the revelation of Kabbalah within Jewish history, we see precisely that. We see precisely that. Now, one of our earliest Kabbalistic texts, in fact, one of the ones I'm going to talk about tonight, has a very enigmatic statement in it about the transmission of Kabbalistic knowledge. And it says it really has three different dimensions to it. <laughs> These three dimensions that the one of the early the earliest texts within the Kabbalistic tradition refers to three ways in which we can communicate revelation. Through Sefer, um, put your hand up if you can read Hebrew letters. Put your hand up if you can't. Okay. Someone put a figure up, I'm not sure what that meant. <laughs> Sefer. Sfar. Same word, but obviously different, different uh, vowing. Sefer, of course, means book or text. Sfar means. Must it be spore? So Sfar is number, and Sipur, which is, of course, story, narrative, communication. Obviously, we immediately note that all of these have the same root, and obviously they're going to go on to become the root of the word Sfirah, which is going to be so paramount. To what we're going to discuss tonight. Sefer, Sfar, Sipur. Basically, 
and I'll come back to who gave this nomenclature later. Book, text, number, communication. It's the first of those, it is the first of those that is going to be our anchor. Because there is no transmission of capitalistic knowledge without the texts of capitalistic knowledge. Revelation comes into the world through the concept of, into the Jewish world, through the concept of sefer, through the concept of book. If people weren't writing books, it would be very difficult to transmit the ideas that we are talking about, especially as the world in the last few thousand years has become more complex, more global, more shifting, more changing. Texts are that which anchor that transmission. And there is no greater mystical tradition that is compiled in texts than ours. So what I want to do each week is I'm going to go through a bit of the history of how Kabbalistic ideas come about and what are those ideas and what was the journey of the Jewish people. It's kind of, we're, like a, we're kind of like in a, in a, in a chronological hovercraft. We're going to go very fast in some respects because I want to look at this as a continuum and how we have made the transition to where we are now. It is not the case and I don't want anybody running out of the room in terror, throwing their yamukah in the bin on the way out. But it is not apparently the case that we have always known what we know now. Now you might sit there and go, oh, David's very facetious. But I'm not. There are people who believe that what we know now has always been known. They are what we might call homogenizers of revelation. They want to try and read back and say, well, so-and-so, you know, as for sure the Rambam read the Zohar. For sure. He just decided not to talk about it. That sort of statement. Um, if, if, if you are, even if you're not familiar with that, you're familiar with that type of statement. But in fact, it's much more exciting to realise that we haven't always known what we know now. Because it means that revelation is an ongoing and constant interruption into Jewish history and shifts things, shifts our direction, shifts history, literally shifts history. Marx was, in my opinion, my humble opinion, at the end of the day, wrong. I mean, for me to say Marx is wrong, it's a big statement, Marx is right about a great many things, but I don't believe that it is material conditions that drive human history. I believe it is ideas. I don't believe it's economic materialism. It is ideas. They are the true movers of history. All right. So much for a closing intro, but I want us to understand what I'm going to be doing so no one goes, well, why do you start talking about books? What is the first book that the field of Kabbalah, whether you are coming from a scholastic perspective in the academic field of Kabbalistic study carried on in universities, and there is that field, or whether you are coming from the perspective of a, a, a Kabbalist with his talus over his head in Mersharim, or whether you are running around in some orchard in California playing Booga Booga, what would we generally regard as the oldest Kabbalistic text. Anyone? Good. So I asked that question in order to get an idea of where the audience is at. So the gentleman here and others said, what about this one? What is Sefi Yitzira? Put your hand up if you've heard of Sefi Yitzira. Put your hand up if you've never heard of Sefi Yitzira. Very good. Sefi, very good. Sefi Yitzira, we might translate that. What's the meaning of the word Sefer? Book. So it's the book of what we might translate Yitzira as formation. 
Sefer is not, strictly speaking, a Kabbalistic book. <coughs> that statement is washing over here and people are going, okay, what's the next sentence? But the point is that that's quite a radical statement. I'm going to unpack it a little bit. I believe it is the first Kabbalistic book, not because of what's in it, or that was not sorry, because of what's in it, not because of what it meant to be. And I'm going to explain that because we're going to talk about the Sephiroth Zero and its foundational role in the unfolding revelation of Kabbalah. Here's the deal. Sefi Yitzhira is a book that is mentioned in very early texts. It's mentioned in the Talmud. The famous story of Ravah and Ravzeira, you know, they're, 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 you know, he's looking in Ravah Baragavra, is the famous uh, statement of the Gemara, that a sage called Ravah and Amora of the 4th century used Sefi Yitzhira, a book called Sefi Yitzhira. He used it to make a dude. He made a person, he made a man using this techniques and energies of this particular book. So obviously thousands and th tens of thousands of Jewish people that are reading this Talmudic passage over centuries are wondering what's that book? And where could we get our hands on that book? But the reality is, is that we don't know anything about Sefer No one's talking about it. No one's really aware of it throughout the time. <coughs> and the first sign we have of it, by which time legends have developed that whatever it is, it was written by Abraham or, and maybe edited by Rabbi Akiva. Obviously, two very big figures from Jewish history had a hand in it, which gives it a kind of credence and approbation, whatever it is. And then, at some point, by the end of the Gaonic period, that is, by the end of the 9th, 10th centuries, so only a thousand years ago, or 1100 years ago, the text is <coughs> the text is known. It appears. And suddenly, all the great rabbis of the generations from, say, the 900s onwards are running commentaries on it, telling people what it might mean. One of the famous, famous early commentaries on it was, of course, I mean, if you're living towards the end of the Gaonic period and you've got a text that a Gaon is going to comment on, then one of those Gaonim is going to be so, Sajid Gaon has a commentary on Sefi Yitzhira, but so do a number of other late Gaonim and early Rishonim. From the 10th, 9th, 10th century, it exists in different kind of forms, variations, but in a recognizable form. It's not printed, of course, until much later, not printed until the 1600s. So it's kind of late on the scene of printing as far as Jewish history is concerned. But I can tell you that everybody who has ever stuck their nose in Kabbalistic literature has read that book. Everybody has read that book. And the reason it is regarded by Kabbalists as a mystical text, and we may, might talk about what exactly Kabbalah means in that context, but it's so often the case that people who lecture courses on Kabbalah dive into a definition of Kabbalah at the start and <coughs> their eyes glaze over because there's no point trying to define what Kabbalah is without actually looking at what it's saying and then you can work out what it is. But the reason, the reason everybody looks at it is because <laughs> it tells us It describes how God created the universe. And it tells us that God created the world, I'm using the word olam, meaning world or universe, created this physical reality. 
through a set of combinations. God was able to do combinations of something called the ten spirot <coughs> the ten spirot and the twenty-two letters of or actually the twenty-two letters of the Hebrew alphabet as I talks like this, <laughs> Pinker will often go, well, the tense here, I'm sure he's going to explain that, and I'm sure he's going to unpack that. Some of you might have been missing here going, I've heard a lot about the tense here, right? I'm not really sure entirely what they are. Let's see if David Solomon can actually tell me. But I'm not going to by that. I want you to understand that you're confronted in the Sefiyatzira when you open it up. I want you to realize that when you open up Sefiyatzira, and normally that would be done by someone in kind of private, because you wouldn't want people knowing that you're taking an interest in this material, because no doubt your parents or your teachers or your elders or your counselors in some way will come along and go, oh boy, oh. But the first thing you're going to encounter is this fact that God creates the world through 10 spirit and 22 Hebrews, and you have no idea what that means. It is not the case that Kabbalists open up a book, like, you know, like, like in the Harry Potter movie, and go, wow. Most Kabbalists, when they open up these farin, these books for the first time, have no idea. And it's very clear from the early commentaries on Sefiyatzira that we don't really know what the Ten Spirot are at that stage. In fact, in fact, Sajigaon even tells you you're not supposed to think about what they mean. Just accept it. When the Sefiyatzira says, Blom picha daber, hold your mouth from talking, it means that whatever it is, you can't talk about it. And you don't know about it. Yet. The 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, we know. The Sefi Tzira also tells us, the Sefi Tzira also tells us that the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, that God invests in creating the world, invests divine intelligence in the world through 32 pathways of wisdom. 32 pathways of wisdom. Once again, we only have illusions as to what that means. <coughs> Commentators will come along and they will say, I'm talking Kabbalistic commentators who are trying to come to terms with this textual revelation. They'll say, oh, well, the 32 is the 22 plus the 10. And you're going, okay, what does that mean? Others will come along and they'll say, ah, the number is third, number 32 is significant. Why is the number 32 significant? Why is the number 32 significant? Why is the number 32 significant? In relation to creation? Lave means the heart, but why is that connected to creation? Because the heart is the seat of wisdom. Everything you're saying is absolutely right, but it's not the right answer. <laughs> that I'm it, is, it is absolutely right that it connects to the word lev, which is numbered bet, which is 32. And in fact, they make a whole big deal about that. But what I was looking at was specifically in relation to the act of creation. 32 times the name Elohim is mentioned in the first chapter of Genesis. 32 times. That means that there are 32 different investments of divine energy into creation. 
Now, what the Sefi Yitzira is telling you, if you extract its essential idea, is that what God did, you can do. This is a manual to access divine creative power. Divine creative power can be channeled into this world by you to create stuff. Divine energy is channeled into the world through 200, by the practitioner, through 231 gates. The famous Ralashari, 231 gates. And what you realize is that the 231 gates are the 22 measures placed in an array, a circular array, and you're going to have 221 point lines that are going to connect them all. Yep. Because that's the formula, isn't it? 22 squared is 464 over 2 gives you 231, 462 gives you 231. Now, That takes us really in another direction. Because once you start to understand the Sefiatira, also the Sefiatira is talking about the fact that there are different perspectives and understand, you know, there's world and there's soul and there's year, all corresponding to this idea of the paradigm of space, time, um, spirituality. <coughs> And what a lot of people have come to realize is that they can actually use the Sefiyatsira as a deep form of creative meditation. And there are people throughout Jewish history who have claimed to have created things like a golem. Yep, everybody's familiar with a golem. A few of them running around Melbourne, I'm sure you've seen them. <laughs> Some of the ones I've created, I couldn't control them all, I apologize. You usually see them in Glicks on a Friday morning. So, and, 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 and if you are deep into Sefi and Zira and you're doing all that, then what you're actually doing is creating realities in your mind. You are emblazoning them. <laughs> And you are following through the divine formula of creation in order to literally, with your mind, carve these things out of the ground around you, raise them up, and they become what they become. And there are many different interpretations of how Sefiyatsira works. But we're still not really at what we call Kabbalah, because no one really knows yet what these ten spherot are. And there's a very, very good chance that they were something else entirely. Scholars will tell you that it has more in common with Pythagorean mysticism than it does with later Kabbalah. After the Zohar, which is already the 13th century, most of the commentators on Sefer Yitzirah are going to tell you that these ten spirot are our ten spirot, the ones that we talk about in Kabbalah. But it's a big love after. We're not sure. And certainly, all of the great, none of the great sages of the late Gaonic and early medieval period do <coughs> that because they don't know about that. They just know that there's some kind of abstract force that is related to numbers. And that they are some kind of permutating abstract system of divine energies. Creative energies. But that's all we really know. Those of you who are interested. You see, I thought we were going to be around the table, so I brought a copy of each of the books. This is a classic, this is one of the, like the Vilna edition of the Sepian Sira. It's a facsimile of, the, uh, of, of, of a printing, a 19th century printing. And what it is, basically, they treat it like a Mishnah. So you will have the central text and then you'll have all the commentaries around it. 
and each Mishnah will tell you uh, a condensed, very, very condensed and a piece of information. Although the Sefer Yitzirah is not overly fashionable today necessarily, it still forms a foundational text, a foundational text for any journey in Jewish mysticism in Kabbalah because so many later texts refer to it. The whole concept that we have, for example, in contemporary spirituality, particularly <coughs> in Hasidut and so on, that talks about concepts like Ratzov Ashov, running and returning as a spiritual paradigm, whether that applies to angels or whether it applies to us or the creation as a whole, these ideas can be read back into Sefer Yetzirah and some of those terminologies are read back into Sefer that come from Sefer Yetzirah. And there's no more famous terminology that comes from Sefer Yetzirah than the concept of Ten Sefirot. But when Sefer Yetzirah first appears, it does not seem that they are understanding it the way we understand it or as it came to be understood later in the revelations of Jewish history. Yeah? So where did that come from? <laughs> if you have a yearning to look at Sefer Yetzirah or you want to make a journey and you want to understand it and you want a good translation and a commentary then I can't recommend anything greater in our generation than the late Rav Arya Kaplan's translation and commentary. Bearing in mind bearing in mind that Kaplan wrote that commentary and translation bringing the full weight of 20th century knowledge about the development of Kabbalah. So he has no problems reading the Ari into it, reading the Ramak into it, reading the Zohar into it, or the Ramak. Anyone later he will use to explicate that. But that's also brilliant because Kaplan was one of those people that also realized that <laughs> Kabbalah was being unfolded in time. It is being revealed and the revealing and the synthesizing is ongoing. What we need to understand is that Sefer Sira establishes certain terminologies and concepts that Sefer Sira might know what it means, but we don't really know what it means. What we do know is that the book is trying to tell us that we can channel divine creativity for, to make things for ourselves and for the world. And that it's using elemental combinations. Elemental combinations. It's not such a far cry from contemporary technology and science, it's just that they had different concepts of what those elementals might be. But everything in the world is created ultimately from the combination of elementals. And here we're talking about combinations of 22 Hebrew letters. All the Hebrew letters are created dynamic forces. If you can manipulate them, you can create them. And a lot of people got involved in Sefer Yitzhira. also tells you and this is one of the reasons why it was attributed to Abraham. At the end of it, it tells you that Abraham used Sefer to make souls. You know when the Torah says, and the souls which Abraham made in Haran. Yeah? So now that's understood by the mystics literally. He literally made souls using the power of the Sefer We don't know what that means. People can look at me in confusion and curiosity. I can't help them. <coughs> Not many people can help them. How you make a soul with the Sefer Yitzirah. Go home, read the Sefer Yitzirah. Try it if it works. We read the Sefer Yitzirah because it's there. Because everybody just wants the Sefer Yitzirah. It's dangerous. Don't be involved. It's a very, it's, but interestingly enough, it doesn't come across as a book of sorcery. It comes as a book as a, as a, as a book of tremendously high spiritual power. And a very, very monotheistic, refined philosophical view of the concept of God, but it's out of reach. It's out of reach. Now, the story for our purposes, and I'm probably already going to have to apologize for going five minutes over tonight, but I, I want to make sure that I transmit this journey that I want to talk about. Our story really starts, the origin of what we call Kabbalah actually happens a couple of hundred years after people are already aware of the Sefi, or, or have already written some of the major commentaries on Sefi Yitzhak. By the time you get to the 1100s, yeah, 
what is where would we be looking at in terms of the just to see if anyone knows this what would we call the centre of the Kabbalistic world when I say the Kabbalistic world where are the mystics congregating and producing figures that are revealing or receiving revelations <coughs> and looking at different types of material uh, that they are expounding mystically, developing innovative ideas. Anyone know where that was happening in the 1100s? No. Way before. You go to Tzvap the 1100s, you're going to find a bunch of Karaites and, uh, and probably uh, you know, some Islamic rulers that aren't really um, that chilled about Jews moving around the place. There might be a few Sufis you might learn off, but no, it's not the 11th, it's not the smart. So, <laughs> it's not quite Spain, no. It all starts in the southeast of France, in Provence. Provence is really where the greatest Jewish mystics of the time were living. And it is Provence, in Provence, that we first see the emergence of the next big sefer that is going to really, there's not the only sefer, but the next big one, if we can only talk about a few, that's really going to influence Jewish mystics because everyone's going to look at it and try and work out what's going on, just like the Sefer Yitzirah had been for the last few hundred years. We're now adding something. It's a new revelation. Well, it's, it's a revelation of something that looks like it's been around for a while. But we don't know of it before the 1100s. And it is... <laughs> and, and it's a book called... Sefer... Into that. 
And what starts to emerge is a book like Sefer Abahi, which is not really a book. Uh, it's more a collection of texts that may not even be Kabbalah. No one really, really knows, but it is definitely talking about the attributes of God. And these attributes are being formed into a kind of a pattern of divine creative attributes. And that pattern is starting the elements, the symbolic elements of that pattern of ten is starting to be given names. Each of the ten is starting to take on a name and an identity. It's not yet quite what's going to happen. But for example, we know that there's the famous verse in Ibrahim, So that's already giving us and the names of quite a number of the Sfirot. And then you're going to have repeated patterns throughout Tanakh that they are midrashically and mystically reading that Chochmah, Binah, Dad. So they're starting to put names to the attributes of God and the Sefer of Bahir is linking that. The Sefer of Bahir, which has very clearly read Sefer Yitzirah, it's fully aware of it. It talks about the 32 pathways of wisdom. It talks about a number of concepts that come up in Sefer Yitzirah. And of course, it's aware of the Ten Sefirot. But its pattern of Ten Sefirot and the names that it applies are not necessarily what we now know them as. What is emerging is an understanding that revelation happens in a pattern. And the Bahir, which is a mystical Midrash, it doesn't read like Sefi Yitzhak as a physics book. It is a Midrash, which means it's much more narrative, much more parabolic. It gives you many more naturalistic metaphors. It's talking about kings and gardens, It's talking about divine flow, not divine investment, but the way that divine energy flows into creation, like water into a garden. If we didn't know any better, and we don't, we might even assume that a very, very strong feminine or female presence in the composition of Bahir, because it is very non-linear, and much more concerned with <laughs> naturalistic metaphors. Many, many less sharp lines in the Sephiroth's era. Much more circular, much more flowing. Much more intuitive. It's difficult to understand by here. But the, the key takeaway is it's also talking about the concept <coughs> of cosmic time. That time itself is cyclic. It talks about the fact that the soul, it's clearly alluding to reincarnation. Whoa, here's an idea that wasn't there before. The idea that certain souls, if not all souls, incarnate in different time cycles. Because cosmic time is cyclic. What has happened before does happen again. Not in some kind of Nietzschean eternal recurrence, but as a type of almost fractal relationship between the creation of the world at the very beginning and how the unfolding of time reflects those patterns. And the spherot are the attributes of God which are patterned. So as to be able to understand revelation in the world and what the divine is. It's not an easy book to understand about here, but the takeaway is, is that what were formerly just numbers are now the attributes of God. But we're still not at what we would call definitively Kabbalah as it's going to come to be known. The first big influential text that's really going to give us that You want to look at the Bahir. So the Bahir, it's very difficult to find a Bahir published by itself. 
except maybe in some extremely modern academic editions. One of the ones is Margoliot's Bahir, which is actually the back of the volume of Tikkurezoi. So he actually printed the Bahir. And if you want to read it in translation, Kaplan's translation of Bahir is floating somewhere just above appalling. I, as much as I've extolled his translation of commentary on Sefi and Zilla, which was a work that he really, really spent years went into, my theory is that Kaplan's translation of the Bahir was published posthumously, because Kaplan passed away in 1983, from a draft. I cannot believe that Kaplan would have meant for the translation to go out in the way that it did. It is a translation, but it's very, very, it's got some problems. Yeah. Do we know who wrote the Bahir, or was it? So we don't know who wrote the Bahir, but, 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 you know, but you know what? I'm thrilled to the max that you asked that question, because if you hadn't, I would have remembered later that I didn't say what, I was, what I'm about to. How do you know if they have a graph like that? Okay, so let me, let, 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 me, let, let me first answer who, 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 something about the authorship of Bahir, and then I'm going to answer that question, how do you know Cameron Crawford from Bahir? The traditional authorship of Sefer Abahir is no less an august figure than the first century Tana, Rabbi Nechunya Ben Akana. Rabbi Nechunya Ben Akana is mentioned in various places in Midrash and other contexts. He is an enormously interesting figure, was a colleague of Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai, a teacher of many of the mystics of the generation. He was regarded as the greatest mystic sage of, the, of that period of the Tanaim. Huge figure. But that's a legendary attribution. We don't have any evidence of that. And not that I'm sitting here going, everything I'm going to tell you is evidence, but it needs to be pointed out. We don't have evidence of that. What we, and neither would I, we, do we have evidence to support the statement and this is the second part, this is really important to understand. It's not that we have evidence that it came from Provence. It's that prior to the circles in Provence, we don't know about it. When I say we don't know about it, no one is talking about it. And if no one is talking about it from our perspective a thousand years later, we can't say it didn't exist but we don't know about it. So we talk about its origins being from Provence because that is where it was revealed. That is where it was revealed. The numbers have become attributes and they are now embedded not in a scientific text like Sefi Sira or an abstract text but in a Midrashic text that gives Midrashic style metaphors and talks about the inner processes of God. And I know that I've already got minus a minute, but we're going to talk about the next book because then I want to wrap it up because next week I'm going to start an entirely new phase. The next major text that we would want to know about after Sefer Abahir, and I'm moving forward a hundred years now, and so that no one's confused, I'm going to buy my Bahir. You can still read the Bahir, but we're going off the board. Bahir is stunning, by the way. The Bahir is stunning. I mean, I'm, I'm not even giving across the literary qualities of these books. They are saturated with mystical vibe and perception. If you understand even just a little bit of Hebrew, you could make your way through the separate Bahir, even with Kaplan's translation. However, there's a new translation. There's a new translation. Jesse Barclay is writing a new translation in the States, writing a new translation of Bahir. I've seen tiny little bits of it. It looks very nice. Hopefully, it'll come out very soon. Uh, <laughs> but the book, moving forward 100 years to the middle of the 1200s, where's the centre of now? Now, where's the centre? Where's the centre now? It's no longer Provence. It went Provence and it went to Gorona and the whole area of Barcelona. Why? Because. <laughs> One of the greatest sages of the, of, the, of the 1200s is living in Gorona. Someone who definitely 
was studying the Sefirit Sirah and the Bahir and is a big, big building block in the synthesis of those two ideas. And of course that's the Rambam, Nachmanides. But after Garola, what is one? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'll put it. As I said, Rabban, it's not often when I say Rabban and people start smiling. It's not a joke about Rabban. No, that's good. That's good. No, perfect. And then from Garona, he moves to. Anyone know? And this is a really big shift. I mean, I know when I say this, you're going to go, I'm just telling me another place named in Europe. Like, really, why is that important? It's true. At this level, it's not exactly important, but these are quite monumental shifts if you understand the inner workings of the history of Spanish and, uh, and, uh, and French Jewry at the time. But it moves to Castile, in the centre of what is today <coughs> Spain, moves like around Toledo and these places, very, very significant, important Jewish communities, but also mystically saturated Jewish communities. And the next book that we would look at, I'm going to stick about here for two minutes, because we have to finish up, is a book called now in Sha'arei Ora, which was written by, who knows who wrote Sha'arei Ora? Sorry? Oh, you see, that's a really, it's not a correct answer, but it's a really interesting answer. It wasn't, no, it wasn't a beloved, huh? But I'm going to come back to that in a second. It was written by Rabbi Yosef, and this is the first time I'm putting an author up, because this is the first book in our list that actually has an author who we know wrote it. And it's a very fascinating author, and I would have liked a bit more time to go into his personal history, because he's one of the seriously interesting people in our continuum. It's Rabbi Yosef Ginkatila. And of course, Ginkatila, from Castile. Why, also? Funnily enough, in my world it is. <laughs> so, in Sha'areura, Sha'areura is really the first book, already a hundred years after the revelations of the Bahir, which may have been around for a lot longer, but the first, the first kind of book that really starts to look like a Kabbalistic book that we would recognize. It is talking, but it is not talking about the Spirot in the first instance. It's a book about the names of God. God is revealed through God's names. And God has ten primary names, which correspond to divine attributes divine creative energies, and yes, ladies and gentlemen, the ten spherot. And the ten spherot are, says Jikatila, and the ten spherot are, says Jikatila. I'm smiling because I know the effect of what I'm about to say. Malchut, Hod, Netzach, Tiferet, Gvura, Chesed, Da'at, Bina, Chochmah, and Keter, which of course is 11. But the real issue is that it's gone from bottom to top. That is because the big innovation of the Sha'are Ora is to link the names of God, the modes of revelation with the names of God as the essence of God, revealing through the names of these modes, taking the idea from Sefi Yitzirah that you can actually channel divine energy, but it doesn't start when you're going hocus pocus or booga. And remember, Jikatila had started off as a student of Abulafia. And this gentleman mentioned Abulafia, and unfortunately we don't have time to go into Abulafia, I've spoken about him elsewhere. But Abulafia's big idea was names. 
He wasn't into Spirotic Kabbalah. No one really was necessarily into Spirotic Kabbalah. He was into names. And then Jikatila makes the switch over to a more, what we call, Sephirotic Kabbalah, away from the yogic exercises and breathing and meditational exercises of Abu Lafia, whose primary aim, Avraham Abu Lafia, Jikatila's first teacher, primary aim was what? What was he wanting to achieve from all these mystical meditations and study? What does he want? We know what Jikatila wants. Well, we know what Abu Lafia wants. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I mean, <laughs> that's quite funny. Because Abu Lafia probably did want that, but if you asked Abu Lafia who's likely to be Mashiach, he'd look around and go, well, you know, I don't want to sound modest. <laughs> what Abu Lafia is looking for is prophecy. Because Abu Lafia spends decades being obsessed with Maimonides' philosophical work, the guide to the place, Morenavuchim. A completely rationalist, medieval philosophical work that Abu Lafia said, no, 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 forget philosophy, forget rationalism. It's full of mystical secrets. And he interprets them. And when the Rambam tells you, you can achieve prophecy through activating you know, your active intellect and having a union mystica with the divine intelligence, oh, Abu Lafia says, Bring it on, I want some of that. So he starts to develop all sorts of techniques to do it. Jikatila is a student. But Jikatila then makes a transition to Sephirotic Kabbalah, where he sees human attributes as reflections of the divine. It's not the case his philosophy is telling us that we have to anthropomorphize the words in the Torah to think that God, when we talk about the arm of God, we're talking about the might of God. That's very nice. But what's really happening is we have an arm because we are microcosmic reflections of that divine energetic interaction with the world. Sorry? Yes, that's the transition. In other words, he starts from Malchud, it's ten chapters, each one dedicated to a name and a sefirah and an attribute and all its parallels signifiers right throughout in order for us to meditate and particularly use this program of ascent in states of consciousness and reification of our own bodies to ascend and particularly in prayer. We are no longer using divine these techniques to change the world. We're using these techniques to change divine configurations to help our reality. We are, in a sense, attempting to influence God through our prayer and through our channeling, which is coming from ourselves. It's a very, very big shift. But for our purposes, the main thing to realize is that Sha'are Ora, written probably around 1273, probably, somewhere around there, not printed of course till the 1500s, but written around there and distributed in manuscript, is a book, I'll get you one second, that lays out very clearly, here are the Sphirot, here's the structure, here's the order of them. So basically from Sha'are Ora, it's kind of fixed. Sha'areorah is not a massive text. This is a copy, this is my copy of Sha'areorah. And it's about, that's about that long. But it's divided into ten gates, each gate dealing with a different spirit. Incredibly cornerstone, literally turning the cornerstone book in the unfolding of the revelation that is going to come. When the Torah talks about the hand of God, yeah? Difficult to understand necessarily how the rabbis of the Talmud that are mentioned in the Haggadah who are quoting it might have understood it. Um, some of them might have actually understood it literally. Yeah? If you said to one of the sages of the Talmud, God's got a body, it's just a very big, ethereal, highly refined spiritual body, but it's a body, they might have gone, okay, I don't see a conflict there with one of these. The idea that, of course, God is completely incorporeal and that to corporealize God is a serious no-no is really a product of the Middle Ages. So medieval philosophy arrives at that and then, then, so then, of course, Jewish philosophers are caught 
um, with the accusations of the Kalam and so on, saying, oh, look at your Torah, full of anthropomorphisms, the hand of God, the eye of God, and then philosophers like Sa'aja and the Rambam, they're coming along and they're saying, oh, no, 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 no. It's not like God has eyes or God has legs or God has arms. Those are metaphors, basically, for the might of God. And they're just put in terms of which we can understand. Jikantelli is saying, no. <laughs> they're not simply there so that we can understand them. We are how we are because we are a direct reflection of the pattern of divine creative interaction. So yeah, in a way, God has an arm, but it's not a body. It's a particular type of creative energy that works in symmetry in relation to the other dynamic framework energies which the Bahiris spoke about. When the Bahiris spoke about a pattern of framework of energies, these are dynamically interrelated. The Bahir, and I'm glad I'm glad to ask because I know that I'm well over, but I'm just going around for a minute because I have to. The Bahir is the first text that gives us the whole idea that there is within the divine, or that the divine can be understood in masculine and feminine form. That in fact masculine and feminine forms must be in harmony to create the flow of creative output from the framework of energies. And along comes Jikatila and says, very nice, but here in the actual sphere of, and what's actually happening is, it's about us. And our ability to channel that divine creativity by ascending ourselves through that framework, not bringing it down as hocus pocus, but actually ascending it ourselves in prayer and becoming a full channel for the revelation of light and of the name of God. And of course, and of course, and of course, it is Sha'ari Oran that really explicates the idea, of course, that the human form is paralleled after the name of God. The Tetragrammaton, yud Hey vav Hey, which is the name associated with the Sphira of Tiferet, is, when placed, vertically a human form and therefore each of those letters in the form that it is has a full representation of the Sfirot and on this point I will finish because that itself is a big revelation but on this point I will finish by saying that Jigatilla writes in his famous Gate 5 which is the Gate of Tiberi which is one of the most astonishing reads in all of Kabbalistic literature for anyone who wants to look at it. He explains to you that other religions, and he's talking about Abrahamic religions, he's talking about Christianity and Islam, are caught in the Chesed and Gvura paradigm. Chesed and Gvura are two of the Sfirot on the right and one on the right, one on the left, that deal with um, kindness and benevolence on the one hand, and withholding and limitation on the other. They are caught in that good, bad, chesed, gvura, judgment, mercy paradigm. You have to be on the middle pillar, which is the Jewish people who are sitting in the place of Tiferet between those two domains, who can, only the middle pillar, can transcend vertically. It's not simply a horizontal alignment, it's a vertical alignment. And therefore, that is why the Jewish people are capable of synthesis. And therefore, only by synthesizing can you then rise. But if you are on the middle column, you can rise because then you go up to Da'at, Divine Consciousness, and ultimately up to Ketan. So I know that's a very advanced point to end with, and I didn't look at the pattern of the Sphirot, which I would have liked to, and I had to come to an end. We will look more at that pattern of what, I mean, you know, the, pattern, the famous pattern that we now talk about. This, this, is, this is already, by the time you get to Yosef Jikret, you've already got Keter, Chochman, Bina, and Da'at, and of course, if there's Keter, there's not Da'at, and that's confirmed already in the Sephiyat Sira. We don't even know what the Sephiyat Sira is talking about. The Sephiyat Sira had already said, there's always 10, 10 and not 9, 10 and not 11. So we know there's that relationship, and then Chesed Gvura Tiferet Netzach Or Yisod Ma'ud. And therefore, Am Yisrael being Tiferet 
is able to raise up on that vertical level and, and because they're able to synthesize from the other domains. I hope all of that has not been too confusing. I'm sorry I went over time. And I hope that uh, we got something out of that. Just to remind us, I talked about Sefi and Sira, I talked about Sefi Rabahir, and I talked about Sha'areora. Just the beginning of the journey that I want to do with you over the next four weeks in this interesting uh, journey through time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.